Our passage today comes from Luke chapter four, verses 14 to 30. Luke chapter four, verses 14 to 30. With God's help, let's incline our hearts together to hear his holy and inspired word. And Jesus returned in the power of the spirit to Galilee and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country and he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath and the land of Sidon, to a woman who is a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Up until this point in our study of the gospel according to Luke, uh, everything that we have been looking at has been preliminary. We've seen Luke's purpose uh, for why he is writing this gospel. We've heard the birth announcements. Jesus has been presented at the temple. Blessings have been pronounced upon him. He's been led by the spirit in the wilderness. You remember from last week being tempted by the devil, but now he, he's passed that test. Jesus has emerged from the desert in the same way that he went into the desert full of the power of the spirit, proving that he is the anointed one. He is the one sent from above. He is the promised Messiah. He is the one come to fulfill all that the prophets have spoken of. 
Well, now it's time at last to hear from Christ himself. It's time to hear him speak in his own words about his purpose and his mission, his reason for coming into the world. As Jesus begins his public ministry, what will his inaugural sermon be about? What will he preach on? That's what we're looking at today. This isn't actually his very first sermon. Luke mentions in in verse 14 and 15 that following his temptation in the wilderness, Jesus went into Galilee. He had a Galilean ministry for a a short period of time there. And uh, throughout that surrounding country, it says that he was teaching there in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And that last statement the, the response of those who listened to him preach in Galilee is very important that he was glorified by all because it's against that, that backdrop that Luke wants to cast the response of the people in Nazareth, the response of the people to Jesus's first hometown sermon in Nazareth, in the verses that follow. So in Galilee, Christ is glorified. He's glorified by all, the Bible says. People are coming in to hear them, to hear him, and reports are going out about him. So the hope of the gospel is doing everything that uh, you desire it to see. It's being received. It's being received with joy and gladness and Galilee. That preparatory work of John the Baptist, that proclamation of a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins has done what God uh, had intended to do. God's hand had had blessed John the Baptist's ministry. Uh, Things had been cleared so that Christ could come in his uh, power and majesty and hold full sway over the hearts of men. Galileans glorify Jesus. That's the response you want to see whenever the gospel is declared. Sinners bow before the Savior. They praise and adore him. They echo echo John the Baptist's cry. He must increase, I must decrease. Well, brothers and sisters, that stands in very sharp contrast with what we see happening in Nazareth in our passage today. In Nazareth, Jesus goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. The Bible says, as was his custom, and there are all kinds of little nuggets uh, of truth here, all kinds of little instructive nuggets that we find here. The Messiah, our Redeemer, was faithful in Sabbath attendance. He went into the Sabbath to worship every, every week. On this particular week, as his public ministry has now begun, he stands up to read. What text is he going to preach from? Isaiah, or Jesus goes to Isaiah chapter 61. The passage is very clear here that Christ is purposeful in choosing this particular text. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him and he unrolls the scroll and he found the place where it was written. So you can, you can just imagine yourself being there. You hear the shuffling of the, of the parchment. You, you watch Jesus trace his finger down the page until he gets to what we know as Isaiah chapter 61. 
in verse one. He proceeds to read, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolls up the scroll and he gives it back to the attendant and he takes his seat. And we know that worship in, in the synagogue included many of the same elements that Christian worship in the church today includes, that there were uh, blessings and benedictions and calls to worship and there would be singing and there would be uh, reading from the Torah and the writings and, and the prophets. And at some point, instruction would be given on the biblical text, usually on whatever passage had just been read for, from So it's right at this point, right after Jesus rolls up the scroll and he hands it back to the attendant, he sits down, every eye is fixed upon him. They're all waiting to hear what he has to say. Remember that when Jesus spoke, uh, even those who didn't put their trust in him, we we find this, this thread that we can trace throughout the scriptures that Jesus' listeners are constantly astonished by, the, by his teaching because he spoke as one who had authority and not as the scribes. There's something distinctive about Christ and the way that he spoke and the way that he delivered the word. So it's at this moment, Jesus makes this pronouncement. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Luke seems to suggest here that this wasn't all that Jesus had to say. It says that he began to say to them, Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. There seems to be a suggestion that maybe there there was an extended exposition of what he had quoted from, but this is what Luke draws our attention to. This is what the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to record for us. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And there are two important things here. There are two big things that stand out as far as verse 21 is concerned. And I want to deal with the first one, uh, the second one first. That idea, that being the idea of fulfillment. This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Which is to say, just in simple terms, that we have a description here of why Jesus came. We have a description from the mouth of the Messiah of why he came into the world. When Jesus quotes from Isaiah and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, he's not just quoting scripture the way someone like myself quotes scripture. When Jesus uses that word me, it has massive implications. When he, when he talks about fulfillment and he takes that word me to his lips, there are massive implications there. The law and the prophets testify of me, Jesus said. This is why I have come into the world. So if you don't know who Jesus is, maybe you know something about 
who he was as a historical figure. You know that he came into the world, that he died on a cross, that he rose on the third day, or you know that the whole world recognizes his birth at Christmas every year, but you don't know why. You don't really know why Jesus came into the world or what he came to accomplish. You could do no better than to peer deeply into a passage like this. In Isaiah chapter 61, uh, the prophet there prophesies that the servant of the Lord would be anointed with the spirit of God to proclaim good news to the poor. The Messiah would come into the world and he would preach good news to the poor and to the needy. He would bring them a message. He would be a preacher. And that's exactly what we find Jesus doing. He said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. The ministry of Christ carried with it a hope that those who had nothing to their name could become citizens of a heavenly kingdom, a kingdom that had no end. He came to proclaim recovering of sight to the blind. Uh, Paul testified, God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where do we discover that? In the face of Jesus Christ. In the face of Jesus Christ. It's by looking at Jesus Christ, not with natural eyes, but with the eyes of faith that we see God and his glory. That we see his majesty, his beauty, his power unto salvation. He came to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to bring freedom to the captives, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is an allusion to uh, the, U, the year of Jubilee. You can find that in Leviticus chapter 25. This was a time every 50th year when on the day of atonement, loud trumpets would be blown. And that would signal a time of release. It was a, 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 a year where captives were to be set free. Debts were canceled. The, the land was left fallow. Now, just as an aside, if you are familiar, you have your Bible open to Isaiah 61, you remember that text, you might notice that Jesus omits one, the one line of uh, devastating news that Isaiah's prophecy includes, the day of vengeance of our God. That is not where Christ's focus is now. That's not where his emphasis lies. It will be one day when he returns, when he returns again to judge the living and the dead. But the witness of the scriptures is that God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus said, I didn't come into the world to judge the world, but to save the world. So Jesus points back to this prophecy in Isaiah 61 and says, I am the fulfillment of these things. Look to me. This is where you're going to find this fulfillment. Now, brothers and sisters, it becomes clear 
and increasingly clear as we walk through uh, the Gospels that when Jesus talks about fulfillment, he is looking beyond temporal, physical, uh, historical realities that, that this announcement entails. What I, mean, what I mean by that is this. When we talk about the poor, we're not speaking in purely economic terms. We're talking about spiritual paupers. It's true that those who are materially poor are often more acutely aware of their need. They're often uh, in a position where they're more prepared to receive uh, the good news that help is to be found, uh, that grace is available. They're more receptive to help. But on a more uh, fundamental level, we have in mind here a kind of spiritual poverty, something that is actually universal to the human race. When we do a spiritual reckoning, if we were to take an honest account of our lives, we would see we are poor. We are spiritual Poppers, when we hold up our lives in light of God's righteousness, in light of his holiness, we see we have nothing to offer. We're actually in the red, spiritually speaking. We're debtors, debtors to mercy alone. Paul said to the church in Corinth, consider your calling, brothers, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God." These are the ones that Christ came to. These are the ones Christ came to minister to. The idea of blindness operates in a similar fashion. Blindness is often associated in the scripture with spiritual perception. The blind beggar came to Jesus and he cried out, son of David, have mercy on me. What did Jesus say? He said, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. It was his his trust in Christ, his faith in Jesus that brought healing to his eyes. What was happening with the land under the old covenant uh, during the year of Jubilee wasn't ultimately about the land. It was a picture of forgiveness. It's a picture of freedom, In 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 2, it says, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. It's the same language being pulled forward out of the Old Testament. It's the new covenant application of the year of Jubilee in the Old Testament. Now is the favorable time. Now is the acceptable year. Look to the Lord. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that, that brings us to the, the second observation here, that word today. When Jesus says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, 
What I'd like to underscore here, brothers and sisters, is that word serves not just as a marker in time, but as a moment of opportunity. It calls our attention to the present hour, to the message that we have heard, to what God has accomplished in his son, and it invites us, when you hear that word today, it invites everyone who has heard the message of the gospel to respond. There's an opportunity there. When Jesus says today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, that word carries with it an implicit invitation and a sense of urgency, today, today. And this is something that the biblical authors echo again and again throughout the scriptures. It's something that they find perennially fresh, uh, perennially applicable whenever the gospel sounds forth. Today is the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6, Psalm 69, 31. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, Answer me in your saving faithfulness. Hebrews 3 and verse 13, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. With each new day, the word today rings out. It demands a response. It carries with it a sense of urgency to everyone who hears the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to look at how this particular congregation responded this day. Now, first, we're going to see an initial response. In verse 22, it says that all spoke well of him. You might find yourself thinking, uh, about another time, just a few chapters later in uh, Luke's gospel, where Jesus says, woe to you when all speak well of you. There's a problem where when you are speaking as a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ, which all of us are, by the way, when everyone speaks well of you, if everyone that we, that we speak to as representatives of Jesus Christ have nothing but good to say about us, they're always congratulating us on what a nice person we are. They never have an ill word to say about us. There's something that's not right. Now, why is that? The whole counsel of the word of God is something that's not comfortable for the, 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 the ear of the natural man to hear. That's the problem with false teachers. False teachers aren't necessarily those who are constantly spouting obvious heresies, but they're giving men things that scratch where they itch. Uh, they're tickling the ears of men. Paul talked about people who heap up for themselves teachers that will suit their own passions. In a way, that's sort of what you have happening here, not in the sense that Jesus is in any way uh, neglecting to say something, but his listeners have made their judgment about him before the sermon's over. They've already determined what, the, what they think about him. They're, they're thinking to themselves, well, so far, so good. I like what I hear. And their attitude is like our own hearts so many times and that we are happy to listen as long as 
what we're hearing scratches where we itch, as long as it feels good. But that's not how we should gauge the profitability of preaching. That's not how we should measure the teaching of any man. The, wor- the yardstick is God's word. Are they faithful to the scriptures? And we see here that this congregation uh, spoke well of him. They marvel at him. They think to themselves, these are gracious words that are coming from his mouth. At the same time, there's a little bit of a tension here. And they say, isn't this Joseph's son? How can the two go together? So with one hand, they embrace him. The other, they're, they're sort of holding him at ar- arm's length. And so before we applaud their response and say, well, they're all speaking well of him, that, that's a good thing. We really need to go on. They have judged him prematurely, or at least we see that their judgment was a, was a superficial one. Brothers and sisters, there's a very important lesson here. This is a congregation that was amazed. They listened to faithful preaching and they were amazed at the things that they heard. They acknowledged the graciousness of Christ's words. They spoke well of him. They enjoyed listening to him speak. But friends, none of those things are the purpose of Christian preaching. Christ came to seek and save the lost. And here we have a congregation where for all of the pleasure that they derive from listening to the Lord Jesus Christ himself preach, the gospel message didn't penetrate their heart. They were in the most dangerous place you can be. They were sitting in church They were listening to the truth. They were comfortable, yet entirely unmoved. They were hearing the words of life, and yet they remained utterly unchanged. In chapter two, Simeon prophesied that Jesus' ministry would result in the thoughts from many hearts being revealed. Look at where, where things go from here. Jesus knows the hearts of men. He knows our hearts. He knew the hearts of those who were there. On this day, Jesus says in verse 23, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. This may be a little puzzling at first to to look at. Notice that they say, what we have heard, not what you did in Capernaum. Jesus discerns their, their skepticism. He knows that they doubt his power and his authority. There's a spirit of unbelief that he discerns within the thoughts of their hearts. They're saying, in effect, well, it's rumored that you've done these marvelous things in the land of Capernaum. Now go ahead and show us what you're made of. Show us what you can really do here at home. And Nazareth. 
And this is going to prove to be something that Jesus encounters repeatedly throughout his ministry, this constant demand that he performs signs and wonders and miracles wherever he goes. Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Enough of the teaching, put on a show for us. Let's see wonders. Well, it's still the case today that men are drawn to uh, men whose purported ministries have that wow factor. And the word of God has been set to the side. It's at the expense of truth. Church, when you look at the ministry of Jesus, it was one of word and deed, but it was the message that he preached that stood at the center of his work. He said, he has anointed me to proclaim good news. That came first. That was the centerpiece. And Jesus discerned the thoughts of their hearts. Beloved, what would he discern about the thoughts of your heart? As it relates to the gospel, to the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ, the purpose that Jesus himself here has described for his coming. What response does Christ observe within the thoughts of your heart? How is God's word affecting you? When you hear the scriptures, are you entertained or are you transformed? Do we discover that there are thoughts of humility or there are thoughts of pride? Is there a spiritual hunger within or is there a disinterest in the word of God? Jesus goes on here and he says, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. There's a bit of a a word play going on here. Jesus has come to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and yet as a prophet, he's not acceptable in his hometown. Nazareth doesn't look favorably on the year of the Lord's favor. Who wants to listen to the local carpenter's son? I mean, he built that piece of furniture in my neighbor's house. Who wants to listen to him? Bring us someone new, someone exotic, someone from the outside, someone that's going to excite our curiosity. The point here isn't just that a prophet is without honor except in his hometown, but what happens as a result of that prophet's rejection. What happens when the Lord imbues a prophet with the spirit of God? What happens when the father gives a prophet a message to give to a people and then they reject that message? that prophet goes elsewhere. That prophet moves on. That is exactly what Jesus is saying here. The Bible says that Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Jesus is underscoring the fact here that his mission, his purpose in coming to the world is a worldwide mission. He has a worldwide 
purpose. It cannot be limited to one ethnic group. The gospel was not just for Jews. It was for all peoples. Brothers and sisters, with whom does God deal graciously with? It is for all who believe. The Jews reject Christ, and so what does Jesus do? He goes on to others. He moves on to those who do receive him. Now, this is such an important point. The worldwide nature of Jesus's mission, his purpose for coming into the world is such an important point that Jesus drives it home with not one but two sermon illustrations that day. He points to two Old Testament examples of the same theme, which together have the effect of saying there's actually already an Old Testament precedent in place for what Christ has now come to do. What you now see in full flower with the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first you find in 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18 with evil King Ahab. This was a time when Uh, God's judgment had fallen on Israel for their covenant unfaithfulness. They had gone off to worship Baal in place of the Lord, their God, and so in consequence, God uh, God brought famine into the land. Uh, For three and a half years, uh, famine was upon the land, and there were many people who were suffering, including many widows, Well, it was during this time also that the Lord raised up Elijah. But who was Elijah sent to? I want to read from 1 Kings chapter 17. This is 1 Kings 17, verses 8 to 16. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This is to Elijah. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first, make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. The wonders of God's grace are poured out, not on an Israelite, 
but on an outsider, a Gentile from Sidon. Elijah goes to a woman. He goes to a widow. He goes to someone of low socioeconomic status. She was an outsider in every sense of the word. And yet, the hope of salvation came to her. And she responded. She responded in faith to the word of God. Now you see the same thing in verse 27 of our text. Jesus says, and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Again, God's grace comes to Gentiles. This time, instead of widows, you have lepers, another category of abjectly needy people. It was bad enough, friends, if you were a Jewish leper. But a Gentile leper could never be considered ceremonially clean. And yet the mercy of God comes to to Naaman. He is a diseased Syrian. He is riddled with leprosy. He is an outsider. He is a picture of someone who is both ethnically and ceremonially unclean. As far away from the people of God and the presence of God as you could get And yet this is the one to whom the Lord's servant is sent. That is the pattern that Jesus is setting forward. And he says here that in a similar way, those who are under his immediate purview, Jews, as one who was born under the law of these, uh, not many will know the liberty and the blessing that he came to bring to the world. Elijah and Elisha both ministered beyond the bounds of Israel's own, and Jesus' interpretation of the scriptures demonstrate that, praise God, those were not just one-off anomalies. That was a redemptive pattern, and they foreshadow what has now been realized in Christ. Jesus said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. There were many in need in Israel, and there were many who had rejected him. If you look at verse 28, it says that all of those who were speaking well of him now, what are they doing? All were filled with wrath. It's the same audience. It's the same people. They were incensed. Now, why do you think that was? At root, the issue here was not just that Christ was bringing the gospel and the hope that he spoke of to unwashed masses outside of the land of Israel, but what these two illustrations implied about Israelites' own place in the story, that they could be likened to widows and lepers in Israel. It implied that they were spiritually sick, that they were needy people, 
that they had gone astray, that they needed salvation, and they hated that. They hated what they heard. They viewed that to be totally intolerable. That's the offense of the gospel. Those who are well have no need of a physician, Jesus said, but those who are sick. Christ came to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Well, the people of old rejected Elijah. They rejected Elisha, and so they went to these outsiders. Now we see that the people of Israel in Jesus' time, they, they reject the Messiah, and he is passing them by. This, this is a, a passage that brings to the fore the sovereignty of God in salvation and man's responsibility. And it, it hits us right where we are. At the very beginning of Christ's ministry, at the very beginning of Luke's gospel here, we are faced with a choice in terms of whether we are going to receive or reject the message that Jesus Christ brings. We are pressed to consider what our response to him will be. To put it another way, do we see ourselves as poor? Are we in need of good news? Would you consider this? How do you understand yourself today? How do you understand your need? When you hear Jesus talk about the poor and the needy and the widow and the leper, can you see yourself there? Can you liken yourself to their plight, spiritually speaking? Are you in need of salvation? Have you come to see your slavery to sin, that you are a captive? There's no way that you can loose yourself. You can't set yourself free. By God's grace, have you been able to sing, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. What did Jesus' listeners do here? They don't humble themselves. They don't confess their sin. They don't own their unbelief. They harden themselves even further against the Lord. They did not like what they heard, immediately fulfilling Christ's words that a prophet is not welcome in his hometown. They rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. The hour had not yet come. Friends, there would be a day when the hour would come. There would be a day when the crowd would cry out and say, away with this man, give us Barabbas. And Jesus would be lifted up on a hill to die as a substitute for sinners. As far as we are aware, this is the last time Jesus preached in Nazareth. It was the last time that gospel was proclaimed to that city. For some, perhaps, it was the last opportunity to know his saving grace. 
Today is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Gracious God, I pray, Lord, that each soul here would seek your face. Lord, I pray that we would seek you while you may be found, that we would call upon you while you're near. Oh, God. Would you save the lost, rescue the perishing? Lord, would you deliver the souls of men from spiritual blindness and oppression? Father, we pray that it would please you to transfer many today from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son. Lord, I ask that for those who have known you savingly, that we would never forget our need, that we would never forget where we once were and that we would remain entirely dependent upon your grace. Lord, I pray that the name of Jesus Christ would be glorified among us all. It's in his name that we pray, amen.